Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the gap between rhetoric and action as the German government, led by Chancellor Scholz, talks a good game about an historic change in a 180-degree shift away from the policy towards Russia of Wandel Deutsch Handel, change through trade. However, promises of imposing sanctions, arming Ukraine and boosting military spending are all being slow-walked with no heavy weapons or air defense systems delivered to Ukraine at all. And joining us is Anna Zamela Busa, who is a professor of international studies in the Department of Political Science, the director of the Europe Center, and senior fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute at Stanford University. Her research focuses on the historical development of the state and its transformation, political parties, religion and politics, and post-communist politics. And her books include Redeeming the Communist Past, The Regeneration of Communist Successor Parties, Rebuilding Leviathan, Party Competition and State Development in Post-Communist Europe, and Nations Under God, How Churches Use Moral Authority to Influence Politics. We will discuss her article at the Los Angeles Times, What Will It Take for Germany, Europe's Heavyweight, to Stand Up to Russia?, and the gap between the German public's outrage at what is happening in Ukraine and the lack of leadership from Scholz's Social Democratic Party and Germany's President Steinmeier, who Zelensky recently made clear is not welcome in Kyiv. Then we'll look into Putin's nuclear saber-rattling and his statement on the launch of the Satan II ICBM that, quote, this truly unique weapon will strengthen the combat potential of our armed forces reliably ensure Russia's security in the face of external threats and will provide food for thought to those who, in the heat of frenzied aggressive rhetoric, try to threaten our country. Joining us is Hans Christensen, Director of the Nuclear Information Project at the Federation of American Scientists, where he provides the public with analysis and background information about the status of nuclear forces and the role of nuclear weapons. He previously was a consultant to the nuclear program at the Natural Resources Defense Council and also was a senior researcher with the Nuclear Information Unit of Greenpeace International. Then finally we'll assess what is going on with the new Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg Jr. as the grand jury investigating Trump is about to disband and a key witness, Michael Cohen, is expressing frustration at Bragg for shutting down the case even though Bragg insists, without providing evidence, that the probe into Trump is continuing. Joining us is Rebecca Royfe, a professor of law at New York Law School who studies ethics and history. She was previously assistant district attorney in Manhattan and her work examines the country's tradition of prosecutorial independence, particularly with regard to the president's power to control the Department of Justice. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Anna Zambella Busa, who is a professor of international studies in the Department of Political Science and the director of the Europe Centre and senior fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute at Stanford University. Her research focuses on the historical development of the state and its transformation, political parties, religion and politics, and post-communist politics. And her books include Redeeming the, the Communist Past, The Regeneration of Communist Successor Parties, Rebuilding Leviathan, Party Competition and State Development in Post-Communist Europe, and Nations Under God, How Churches Use Moral Authority to Influence Politics. And she has an article at the Los Angeles Times, What Will It Take for Germany, Europe's Heavyweight, to Stand Up to Russia? Welcome to Background Briefing, Anna Zamela Busa. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for joining us. And what will it take? I mean, already, apparently, there's a lot of criticism of Chancellor Schultz, now Donald Tusk, the former European Council president and uh, Prime Minister of Poland. They've been very, very critical. And according to your article, Anna, in spite of all of the talk uh, 
coming from Germany about standing up to Putin and changing its whole uh, posture, they've been slow walking what they promised in terms of support for Ukraine. So what's happening with Schultz? You know, I think Schultz is simply the last in a long line of German politicians who defer to Russian interests over anything else. And I think there are two reasons for this. One is simply the recognition that Russia is, is, is what they view as a regional superpower. And so it's a serious country that they need to take into consideration. But then there are also some very real economic interests. Um, you know, basically, under Angela Merkel, Germany has become much more energy dependent on Russia. Nord Stream 2, the pipeline that was supposed to go from Russia to Germany, was sort of seen as the, the lifeline of German industry as far as energy is concerned. And repeatedly what we see are German politicians who not only defer to Russia, but actually join the boards of uh, Russian energy companies. The most notorious example here being Gerhard Schroeder, of course. So is there a sense, though, in Germany, perhaps amongst the public, not to mention the politicians, that this is an unusual war in as much as the victims in many ways are financing the aggressors? And in Ukraine's case, of course, the pipeline that exists goes across their territory and, and that hasn't been touched. And Germany is obviously spending, what is a billion dollars a day that they send to Russia to finance this aggression um, that's taking place and clearly is aimed at NATO. So is that paradox understood? It is. And I, you know, the vast majority, the vast majority, the majority of German um, uh, poll respondent, the public opinion in Germany is certainly both to uh, favors both helping Ukraine and favors greater sanctions against Russia. So there's no question that the German people, I think, get this more than the German political elites who are traditionally sort of slow moving, who don't react very quickly, um, and who frankly worry about the economic effects on Germany much more than anything else. I think you know it's it, both in the European the financial crisis in 2009, 2010, and now there's, you know, the fundamental worry is about the German economy, even though there's a group of German economists who've actually run some quick calculations and argues that this would actually not hurt the German economy all that much. But there's a hesitation here to do anything that might stifle German economic growth or German economic stability. Well, it seems that the Green Party, which is a big part of this coalition and the foreign ministers from the Green Party, they seem to get it, don't they? I mean, what's the problem? They can't persuade Schultz to break with tradition? That's right. I, you're absolutely right. The foreign minister, Annalena Baerbock, has repeatedly criticized his, her own government and stood for not just greater sanctions on Russia, but also um, the delivery of heavy weapons to Ukraine. But Schultz is from a very different political party. Um, you know, Both the Social Democrats and the Christian Democrats have traditionally deferred to Russia they view um, Russian interests as first and foremost to German stability. So it's almost a habit of the mind. You know, they can't seem to break out of this idea that it's Russia's interests and you know, Russia, Russian agreement that they first have to seek. Well, I mean, there's been a problem with the West in general treating uh, Putin over the decades as a legitimate world leader in spite of the fact that he, he started out early in his career as the president, uh, after being the head of the FSB, he killed over 300 of his own people, blowing up apartment buildings in order to prosecute a war in Chechnya. The record is extraordinary. Don't people look at who the leader is? I mean, it's we've never had this in geopolitics before. The combination of national security and organized crime, nuclear weapons, and the mafia. And, and look what he's doing in Ukraine. It's absolutely the, the actions of a, of a mafia thug. So this is getting through to the people, but not to the politicians. And, and it's just extraordinary that what's it going to take for them to realize that this guy's dangerous? And I'm not sure that you can make a deal with him. You know, I think by this point, uh, that, that recognition exists. But I think we have to look at what happened in the 2000s. You know, Georgia was invaded in 2008. The West did nothing. Ukraine was invaded in 2014. And there were sanctions, but Germany didn't really participate in them. So I think, you know, what Putin calculated was that this would be just like those previous conflicts, something that he can get away with, that the West wouldn't react to. 
And I think what's surprising is the extent and the speed of the Western reaction to his behavior and his aggression. And I think, you know, for Germany to sort of catch up with that is, is just taking a surprisingly long amount of time. And to be sure, you know, Schultz uh, in, on February 27th announced this sort of, you know, 180 degree turnaround in German foreign policy. It's just that they're not following through on any of those commitments. And again, I'm speaking with Anna Zamelabusa, who is a professor of international studies in the Department of Political Science and director of the Europe Centre and senior fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute at Stanford University. Her research focuses on the historical developments of the state and its transformation, political parties, religion and politics, and post-communist politics. And she has an article at the Los Angeles Times, What Will It Take for Germany, Europe's Heavyweight, to Stand Up to Russia? So what about this uh, Vandal Dirch handle notion of change through trade? Is that still in place? Again, one would think that, that it's been a manifest failure. So they don't view it that way. Um, what the sort of, you know, Vandal Durchhandel strategy is really a continuation of communist era Ostpolitik. This idea that been, by engaging the East, by engaging East Germany and the Soviet Union, um, West Germany could stand to benefit more than by simply acting hostile. And so this is very much a continuation of that policy, where in the 1990s, the German leadership decided that by integrating Russia, by engaging them economically, they might better be able to ensure sort of European peace and stability and their own economic well-being. And for a while, that really worked, right? Um, you know, the oil and energy were flowing freely to Germany, um, and Germany became energy dependent on Russia. And that seemed a good deal. And this is why this is such a crisis, because it's very hard to basically be able to do, continue to do this in the face of massive uh, Russian aggression. But for a very long time, it worked and was incredibly convenient for the German political elites. Because on one hand, they could conclude side deals and benefit themselves personally. On the other hand, they could claim that they were basically being the responsible party in Europe. The, you know, the country that was engaging Russia, that wasn't sort of, you know, poking the bear, quite literally, that wasn't sort of, you know, um, provoking a Russian reaction. And in fact, Germany was quite critical of Poland, of Czechia, of Ukraine for not living up to what they saw as reality and for not recognizing that, you know, everybody should be cooperating with Russia. So I think, you know, in, in many ways, these are sort of the chickens coming home to roost. Um, it's a longstanding policy. It worked for a very long time. And in the face of Russian aggression, it has to be changed. But Germany is having a very hard time adjusting, or German political elites are having a very hard time adjusting to this new reality. Well, the German president, uh, Frank Walter Steinmeier, he's sort of person non grata, is he, in Ukraine? I mean, Zelensky doesn't trust him at all. And I can't blame him. Um, Steinmeier has defended Nord Stream 2 as one of the last bridges between Russia and Europe. He's always defended um, Russia and Russian interests. And in fact, you know, he keeps telling, he's one of the, you know, the prime uh, sort of, you know, offenders here because he's the one who kept telling Ukraine and Poland and other countries, especially the Baltics, that they shouldn't lose sight of the bigger picture, quote, um, by which he meant sort of, you know, overall European stability. And so he's very much one of the people who is both responsible for um, advancing these kinds of policies and who's seen as quite offensive by a lot of um, people living you know, in between Germany and Russia, whether in the Baltics, in Poland, or in Ukraine, for basically being an appeaser and a defender of Russian interests above all. Well, it is extraordinary that this mindset exists in the first place in the face of such evidence to the contrary. And a lot of the weapons that Scholz has promised are not coming right. I mean, he, they're not transferring tanks and artillery. The British seem to be stepping in, along with the the United States, of course, and Poland and Slovakia, etc. So where does the debate stand now? I mean, can you name and shame? I mean, Schroeder, of course, <laughs> is pretty shameful, and his own staff quit in en masse, apparently. But can you name and shame Schultz into getting off the dime? You know, so there's actually been quite a lot of backlash within Germany. It's not just um, Annalena Baerbock, the um, the Green Minister. It's also a lot of other sort of public um, intellectuals who are now basically criticizing um, the Schultz government very heavily. And so, you know, there's now I think they're backtracking a little bit and announcing that they you know they will in fact um, do more. But even yesterday, one of the top generals in Germany said that sending tanks to Ukraine 
would basically um, render uh, Germany defenseless. Um, and they are still insisting that NATO act as a joint, as a joint group and agree, that NATO jointly agrees to sending arms, which is ridiculous, right? I mean, as you pointed out, the UK, the US, Estonia, Czechia, Poland have all been sending arms and aid um, without uh, NATO, NATO sort of agreement. Um, and that had, there's been absolutely no problem with that. But I think, you know, Schultz is slowly realizing that he has to actually live up to the commitments he made in February because there's increased backlash both internationally and domestically. And on the energy front, in terms of becoming more or less dependent, more independent, obviously LNG terminals take a long time, nuclear power plants take you know decades to build, and Germany shut down its nuclear plants after the Fukushima accidents in uh, Japan. So your article mentions an LNG plant that's under construction. It takes about four years. Why aren't they talking about building more wind because you can put up a wind farm what in, in six months I, I don't understand I would have thought that if there's going to be a kind of post-mortem on this tragic war so far what we're hearing now is that NATO is going to increase its defense spending wouldn't it be wiser for NATO to invest in or the, particularly in Germany and these other European countries to invest in less dependence more alternatives, solar and wind? Absolutely. I think that holds for the entire world. The less dependent we are on what are almost invariably authoritarian sources of oil and gas, the better off liberal democracies and world peace is. I don't think there's any question about that. I think, however, the German calculation was very different. Germany, I think, thought that this war will be over very soon. They will have made their 180 degree turnaround. So, you know, all the sort of commitments, all the sort of, you know, big reactions. The war would have been over soon. Russia would have won. And then it would have been back to business as usual. And so I think, you know, Schultz and others right now are caught in a trap of their own making. They assumed it would be just like 2008 or 2014. Quick wars that Russia won um, and you could be back to things they were before. What's striking is that I think there's a recognition now that with this particular aggression, with this particularly vicious invasion, you can't go back to business as it was before. And they can't just wait out Russia and wait out Ukraine. And so I think there's already been some talk about reopening the mothballed nuclear plants. I think there's more talk about definitely shifting away from Russia um, and energy dependence on Russia. And Nord Stream 2 did get frozen, right? So it's not as if it's, um, it's, it got suspended. But I think the big difference is that the reason why we're not seeing more of these decisions about wind farms um, and sort of shifts to other sources of energy is because Germany, like many people in Europe, assumed this war, war would have been over very quickly, that the Russia would have won, and they could have gone back to business as usual. Um, but Ukraine proved them wrong. So is this a case of, of just a, a lack of leadership in Europe and Germany being the key European country? I mean, when you mentioned earlier, Anna, that uh, under Angela Merkel, who was in power for some time, she created this kind of energy independence. I also thought that she was one of the few people she speaks Russian and uh, would apparently call Putin regularly just to let him know what's happening in the real world because she was aware of the fact that he's living in his own bubble, being a dictator with a bunch of sycophants around him which we all saw in that extraordinary television display of, the, of his meeting of, of his National Security Council where they were all sort of supplicants. He dressed them down like errant schoolboys. So give me a sense of the good and the bad about Merkel. You know, I think Merkel recognized what Putin was. I think they did not enjoy a warm personal relationship by any means. She was a child of East Germany. She knew what uh, the Soviet occupation meant. That said, she was under pressure and she herself thought um, that basically this relationship could be managed. Above all, I think there was a dismissal across German elites of any evidence that was inconvenient. And by that, I mean, you know, Germany was seeking a cheap source of um, energy. It basically viewed, viewed Nord Stream 2 as a way of bypassing all those inconvenient little countries like Ukraine and Poland who kept you know, raising the alarm about Putin. And they really thought that this could be a relationship that could be damaged, it could be managed. And that so long as Russia was supplying the energy, Russia would also behave itself. So, you know, there's a total disregard for the kind of, you know, endless complaints from the Poles or the Ukrainians, um, the Estonians, the Lithuanians, the Latvians, 
all of whom were screaming bloody murder that you cannot trust Putin. Um, I think Angela Merkel and her successors believed that they could manage this relationship. They believed that energy dependence on Russia would mean that Russia would behave itself um, and that Germany would basically benefit without having to commit um, resources, too many resources to Russia or to Europe itself. Well, boy, has that blown up in their face. <laughs> they simply can't deny the reality of the moment, can they? You know, you make, a, you make a deal with the devil. You have to live by the terms. Well, I thank you for joining us here today, Anna Zamela Busa, and, and let's stay in touch. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Anna Zamela Busa, who is a professor of international studies in the Department of Political Science and the director of the Europe Center and a senior fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute at Stanford University. Her research focuses on the historical development of the state and its transformation, political parties, religion and politics, and post-communist politics. And her books include Redeeming the Communist Past, The Regeneration of Communist Successor Parties, Rebuilding Leviathan, Party Competition and State Development in Post-Communist Europe, and Nations Under God, How Churches Use Moral Authority to Influence Politics. And she has an article at the Los Angeles Times, What Will It Take for Germany, Europe's Heavyweight, to Stand Up to Russia? We're going to take a restation break back looking into Putin's saber-rattling and his statement on the launch of the Satan II ICBM. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Hans Christensen, who's a director of the Nuclear Information Project at the Federation of American Scientists, where he provides the public with analysis and background information about the status of nuclear forces and the role of nuclear weapons. He previously was a consultant to the nuclear program at the Natural Resources Defense Council in Washington, D.C., and also was a senior researcher with the Nuclear Information Unit of Greenpeace International in Washington, D.C. Welcome to Background Briefing, Hans Christensen. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And what do you make of this saber-rattling, nuclear saber-rattling, I guess you could call it, going on now with Putin launching, test-launching a, a new ICBM, which they've called Satan II? Is it, as some have speculated, a way to kind of disguise the fact that things aren't going well for him in Ukraine? No, I don't think so. Um, this is a, a test-launch of... Uh, a replacement ballistic missile um, that they have been working on for many, many years. Um, it was originally uh, intended to be test launched um, at, at its uh, sort of, uh, you know, in a full full test range mode uh, back in 2019, but they had problems with it. And so they did a couple of pop-up tests in, instead. And this is the first time we then see an actual launch with the payload uh, across Russia. Um, so this should be seen as sort of a, uh, a standard um, missile development test um, that we, we see from time to time. Not, not an incident I think is directly related to what's happening in Ukraine. But as we saw, uh, Putin took the opportunity to sort of say this is a reminder that countries should not mess with us, uh, <laughs> that kind of language. But that's more generic um, uh, kind of language about the role of U of Russian uh, nuclear weapons. But is it a, a liquid-fueled missile, which seems like a step going back to the 1960s and 50s? Well, the, the silo-based missiles, um, the large ones, are, are, uh, are liquid-fueled. This one is too, and um, it is... It's replacing the old SS-18, um, which is also a multiple warhead uh, missile that was introduced back in the 1980s. And, um, and, and, and that one was also liquid fuel. Um, so this one, you know, follows that model and it sort of, uh, you know, really is a replacement missile um, and is part of Russia's 
uh, general uh, replacement of um, uh, the Soviet era uh, weapon systems. Well, the U.S. had Titan missiles in the very beginning of the Cold War, did they not? And one of them blew up down in Arkansas. And don't they require periodically being refueled and you have to put in a certain amount of fuel depending upon what the targets are? I mean, they don't sound like as reliable as the solid-fueled missiles. Well, they are... I mean, they're reliable in the sense that... um, you know, we haven't seen them blow up in Russian missile silos, <laughs> and they are, you know, they've been used for for many many decades. And so the Russians actually have a lot of experience in operating them. Uh, the U.S. moved away entirely from liquid fuel missiles and now only have solid fuel ballistic missiles. Uh, but in Russia, you still see this mix. Um, so there's this one, you know, that is liquid fuel. Um, and then, but the the uh, the other modern version, if you will, the one that's called SS twenty seven, that one is is solid fuel, and so that one is going in both in silos elsewhere as as also as well as also on mobile uh, missile launchers. So they have a mix. So you sort of dismiss the uh, Putin statement that the Satan two is a, a message to the West that you know Russia can't be trifled with. I can't remember exactly what he said, but it was kind of ominous. Well, sort of this, this is the Russian style, um, at least the, the, the Putin regime's style. Um, they have been making these kind of statements uh, all the way back to 2008, possibly even earlier than that, but where they make very explicit or generic uh, nuclear threats and some of them, of course, are, are generic. They're about reminding adversaries um, that Russia has nuclear capabilities and they're to defend Russia in case somebody did something uh, aggressive against Russia. Um, they do, of course, also to some extent play up to the domestic audience, uh, to people in Russia saying, look, we're doing all these things to protect you and nobody can threaten Russia. So it's sort of a mix of it. But but again, I wouldn't I wouldn't use this particular missile test as a way of saying this is Putin, you know, going out of the ordinary and and trying to uh, raise a, a nuclear threat in the middle of the Ukraine crisis for some reason linked to that crisis. I don't think that's the case in this one. And again, I'm speaking with Hans Christensen, the director of the Nuclear Information Project at the Federation of American Scientists, where he provides the public with analysis and background information about the status of nuclear forces and the role of nuclear weapons. So this is a replacement of the SS-18 intercontinental ballistic missile that I think was the mainstay of the Soviet uh, arsenal towards the end of the Cold War. It has a range of about 11,000 miles, right? And how many of them uh, are they deploying, do we know? Yeah, they have about about 40 of them, so in the silos right now. they used to have a lot more, but they're down to two missile fields, one um, sort of in the southern part of the western part of uh, central Russia and, and the other one further east. Um, and the one further east is, is sort of in an area called Uzur. And that is an area where, um, you know, they have half about half of their SS-18s currently in silos. What we can see is and what we've been monitoring by by satellite photos uh, over the last co- uh, couple of years is that at the start of last year they started upgrading some of the missile silos in one regiment of this division and and that is where we suspect that the first of these sarmat missiles will go in once they are, of course clear their state testing program and become uh, you know sort of ready to be handed over to the military so How do you see this in the context of not-so-veiled warnings from Putin about nuclear weapons? I mean, it's a bit of a paradox at the moment, isn't it, that the mutually assured destruction doctrine is actually kind of paralyzing NATO's response. I mean, they can't really help the Ukrainians out in the way that the Ukrainians want them to be helped out, and particularly with a no-fly zone and, and more weapons coming in and certainly not boots on the ground, because NATO is afraid of escalating to the point where Russia could use a nuclear weapon. So it seems like Putin has the advantage of nuclear saber-rattling at the moment. 
Yes, but Ukraine is not part of NATO, and so NATO has never provided a nuclear security or, or general security guarantee to um, Ukraine, So, and has never tried to play up uh, the nuclear deterrent function vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Ukraine. Um, so NATO has an interest in, in, in limiting deterrence or limiting nuclear escalation uh, to NATO territory. That is what it's, it was founded to do. Um, the thing about Ukraine, of course, is that Putin, of course, was counting on NATO not going in uh, conventional or otherwise um, uh, to help the Ukrainians. And he wanted to tr create this sort of buffer zone between himself and NATO. But there were also other issues that drove him, such as, uh, you know, cultural or political issues that he has been playing up in his, his sort of version of, of why he's justified to go in there. Um, but all countries, of course, are deterred to some extent by nuclear weapons because they are so terrible in their potential effects. So I wouldn't sort of say that NATO is not justified in being cautious about going in directly. Um, it, it's... A lot. I mean, if people are worried about what's happening in Ukraine, they should be a lot more worried about what can happen if uh, a conflict erupts between NATO and Russia that potentially escalates into nuclear use. Well, just to quote what Putin said about that on the launching of the Satan II intercontinental ballistic missile, that, that this would give thought to those who are trying to threaten Russia. And who does he think is threatening Russia? The Ukrainians, they, had, they don't have nuclear weapons. They gave up their nuclear weapons. And in fact, in the Budapest Agreement, in the, when they gave up their nuclear weapons, the Russians promised their uh, territorial integrity. Yeah, that's correct. The Russia has, has violated its pledge to Ukraine, Ukraine and that's obviously what makes it, uh, you know, double, um, uh, you know, unacceptable what, what Putin has been doing. Um, but the, that's why I'm saying that what Russia has... The way Putin articulated this is what you can sort of describe as a generic reminder of the role of Russian nuclear weapons. It's not an explicit statement that's, that links the role of nuclear weapons to a particular scenario. Um, so, so this is a reminder that Russia has nuclear weapons so it can defend itself, and that's why it's spending all this money on it. Um, if a large uh, power from elsewhere uh, decided to use weapons of mass destruction or, you know, a massive conventional attack that threatened the future of the Russian state. Um, this is not unique, of course, to Russia. Um, you know, Britain, France, and 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 other new and the United States and other nuclear weapon states. They also, from time to time, remind adversaries about the the role that their nuclear weapons play. So this is these are generic statements. This, what has been unique about Putin, of course, is that he sometimes, or his officials, sometimes in the past, have made very explicit threats where they, for example, in the context of missile US missile defense system being deployed in Europe, directly have threatened the countries that accepted them on their territory that they could become targets for Russian nuclear weapon. So that's a different way of talking about the role of nuclear weapons. So just in the last few minutes then, Hans Christensen, why then is the CIA expressing concern that Russia might use a nuclear weapon in Ukraine? And, and Ukrainian President Zelensky on a number of occasions has also expressed concern that Russia might fire a tactical nuclear weapon. What's that based on? It's based on a, a, a general concern um, that the situation in Ukraine could escalate further and that Russia, for whatever reason, potentially could choose to escalate to something worse. Um, you know, things don't go well the way they planned it or uh, more, probably more importantly, if the situation in Ukraine uh, combined with the very heavy sanctions that are now being um, inflicted on Russia that have real serious consequences are beginning to have even more serious consequences inside Russia. Um, if those add up in Putin's mind to some kind of uh, national emergency that he will have to take uh, desperate measures, 
that's where they are concerned that in a situation like that, he might choose for, you know, the next step on his escalation ladder. But even so, they have other steps below. They could you know, ramp up certain kinds of conventional attacks. Um, they could also use chemical uh, uh, weapons if, if they needed to. So there are a couple of steps they could take other than nuclear. So I think I think the concern here <clears throat> is a generic one. It doesn't reflect that there is a concern about an immediate risk that nuclear weapons will be used. So just to go back to my sense that the nuclear umbrella is sort of working in Putin's favor. It seems to limit the choices that the NATO allies have. And we just early on the program were talking about how Germany's sort of talking a good game about about standing up to Putin, but they're actually doing the opposite and they're slow walking and not providing arms. And basically, the it's the British and the United States and Slovakia and others that are pouring arms in. But at some point or other, Putin and his diplomats have already said that they'll start targeting NATO convoys. And for some reason or other, they haven't targeted you know, 747s that land at Kiev's airport full of of arms. So this situation could escalate, but is the fear of nuclear weapons restraining NATO more than it's restraining Putin? That's what I want to get a sense of. Um, yeah, I think, uh, I think it is in the sense that, um, you know, Putin doesn't, of course, have to face uh, a nuclear-armed adversary he's invading, and he also doesn't have to face uh, nuclear-armed states that are coming to the rescue of that. Um, but, but again, I don't think that's something specifically unique about uh, the situation in Ukraine. I mean, this is the fact for all nuclear weapon states and other nuclear weapon states, whether they get involved in conflicts, you know, here or elsewhere. That they're also they're always these considerations they have to think about. Who are we up against? You know, who 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 is this, and what have they said they can and will do if if X, Y, and Z happens? Um, so this in this case, I think it's important to remember again that you know NATO did has not played up the nuclear card. It has not tried to 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 uh, to deter Russia uh, from going into Ukraine because with you know with with nuclear threats or significant conventional threats, of course. Um, so it's doing it this sort of roundabout way. And like I mentioned before, there, there are reasons for this. And frankly, I think they're valid uh, in the sense that uh, the, the potential risks of a, a direct confrontation between NATO and Russia would be vastly more serious than what we're seeing in Ukraine right now. Well, Hans Christensen, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Great. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Hans Christensen, who's director of the Nuclear Information Project at the Federation of American Scientists, where he provides the public with analysis and background information about the status of nuclear forces and the role of nuclear weapons. He previously was a consultant to the nuclear program at the Natural Resources Defense Council and also was a senior researcher in the Nuclear Information Unit at Greenpeace International. We're going to take a brief station break and back assessing what is going on with the new Manhattan DA, Alvin Bragg Jr., as the grand jury investigating Trump is about to disband and a key witness, Michael Cohen, is expressing frustration at Bragg for shutting down the case, even though Bragg insists, without providing evidence, that the probe into Trump is continuing. But the Adams here, in spite of hysteria, it flourishes in Utah as well as Siberia. And whether you're a black, white, red, or brown, the question is this when you boil it down. To be or not to be, that's the question. The answer to it all ain't military datum like who gets there firstest with the mostest atoms. No, the people of the world must decide their fate. They got to get together or disintegrate. I hold this truth to be self-evident that all men may be cremated equal. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Rebecca Royfe, who is a professor of law at New York Law School, who studies ethics and the history of the legal profession. She was previously assistant district attorney in Manhattan, and her work examines the country's tradition of prosecutorial independence, particularly with regard to the president's power to control the Department of Justice. Welcome to Background Briefing, Rebecca Royfe. Nice to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And what do you make of the turmoil at the Manhattan DA's office now that there's a new 
DA in Manhattan, Alvin Bragg Jr., there was the very high-profile quitting of the two prominent prosecutors, Mark Pomerantz, who uh, made it clear in his resignation, uh, which he shared with the New York Times, that uh, Donald Trump is guilty of numerous felonies and the other prosecutor, Kerry Dunn. But others have also left the Manhattan DA's office. So there's an article in the uh, Daily Beast, Manhattan DA star witness, indict Trump now or I'm out, which is largely about Michael Cohen's frustration at having been a key star witness and having this sort of important case disappear. So Bragg keeps saying that the case is still happening, but the grand jury expires at the end of this month in, what, about nine days. So are we to believe Alvin Bragg? Um, So, you know, I I think it's pretty obvious from the beginning that there was a disagreement and those prosecutors issued a letter basically saying as much. And so their resignation wasn't quiet, but was rather um, made with a bang. And I think that was because they really wanted to make this statement that they thought they had a case there and that D.A. Bragg disagreed with them. So, you know, I think at this point that's pretty clear and that's not so unusual. I mean, it it does happen that different prosecutors look at evidence and come to different conclusions about the strength of that evidence. So, you know, I, I think that that's probably what happened there, that the D.A. just looked at it and thought it wasn't a strong enough case and didn't want this, you know, a potentially losing case against the former president to define his tenure as Manhattan D.A. Um, so, You know, his announcement, though, that he was still continuing the case was somewhat confusing to me because it did seem really unlikely that there would be more evidence to be found that would really change the calculation. Because obviously these prosecutors are seasoned, talented prosecutors who had looked through this evidence extensively, and it wasn't like they were in the business of flipping witnesses, which is the kind of thing that can, you know, suddenly change the way a case looks. So, you know, I don't, I I, I wouldn't go so far as to say, you know, Alvin Bragg was being disingenuous when he said that the investigation was going on. But my guess is that he what he decided to do was to keep that grand jury and, you know, to really sift through every last thing they had and then draw a conclusion. My guess was he was thinking that he was ultimately probably going to draw the conclusion not to charge. So, you know, when this most recent news came comes out that um, Michael Cohen is getting frustrated, I it, it's unsurprising because he's seeing the writing on the wall. Um, you know, a couple of things, though, about that piece. I mean, you know, he, Michael, it, it calls Michael Cohen their star witness. I, I don't you know, I don't know where that story comes from, but it might come from Michael Cohen himself. So I think we should read it with a with a grain of salt as well. I, I, I can't imagine that Michael Cohen would have been a particularly good witness in this case, and I doubt he was the only witness in this case. So, um, you know, I, I don't know whether whether casting him as the star witness is something that the prosecutors would have agreed with. Well, according to the Daily Beast article, Michael Cohen was interviewed 15 times by the Manhattan DA prosecutors, and three times when he was in jail. So it does seem like they spent a lot of time with him. Oh, yeah, I totally agree with that. I'm sure they did spend a lot of time with him, and I'm sure he helped them put um, pieces together that, you know, helped them build this case. But that's a little bit different from being a star witness because— Um, You know, you can rely on witnesses for a whole lot of different reasons as a prosecutor, and some witnesses are more useful in their role as, um, you know, behind the scenes helping you to build the case because they know the insiders and they know where the bodies are buried, so to speak. But once you got that person up on the stand, they wouldn't be a particularly good witness. And I, you know, would certainly be worried if I were a prosecutor, if my star witness were Michael Cohen, because, you know, we saw him testify in Congress. And back then, you know, there was certainly disagreement about whether or not he was credible, um, largely falling along um along partisan lines. But, you know, the burden of proof in a criminal case doesn't make it such that, you know, if half the people think that you're being honest and half the people think you're not, that would work. And so, you know, I I would be very concerned about having a witness who had lied to Congress, lied to federal investigators, lied um, in forms that he submitted on behalf of the, you know, he's a very, very, he'd be a very difficult um, witness. And it's not to say that they couldn't use him. Of course they could. But if they were solely relying on him, I don't think that would be a very strong case. So, you know, we don't really know what's behind the scenes and what he helped them put together. But I assume even if 
there was a disagreement, as long as those two prosecutors thought there was a case, they were relying on more than just Michael Cohen's word for it. Well, apparently, though, the prosecutors did rely on Michael Cohen's testimony and evidence going after Trump's accountant, Weisselberg, who obviously did not want to rat on the boss. Yeah, for sure. But the, the I mean, at least from the indictment in that case, the um, the documentary evidence looks excellent, right? I mean, they basically had, as far as I could tell from that indictment, it looked as if they had, um, you know, two two different basically two different records, books and records, one showing an honest um, representation of the payments and others showing um, what they were using it for in order to um, get around paying taxes. So, you know, to me, that case could be could could have been brought without, um, you know, without a strong witness, unlike a kind of um, the, the case, at least it looked like they were bringing in this one, which is, you know, a tax fraud kind of bank fraud case in which, you know, you really need to um, you're going to have these different numbers, but you need to understand, you know, what was the intent, who was behind it. And for that, you know, if you don't have a cooperating witness who's credible to tell you what's going on, it's a very hard case to prove. And so that's not to say it's impossible to prove uh, based, just based on documentary evidence, but it's pretty hard. So while, again, they could use Michael Cohen, I, I don't think he would be great if he were, um, you know, the sole witness that they were relying on. I mean, it's just, it'd be so easy um, for a defense attorney to undermine his credibility. He's worse than most cooperating witnesses. So, you know, I would, I would be sympathetic with Bragg if that was all they had. But my, you know, my guess is that he helped them put together a case that was, you know, strong, but just maybe not strong enough for Alvin Bragg's liking. And again, I'm speaking with Rebecca Royfe, who's a professor of law at New York Law School, who studies ethics and the history of legal profession. She was previously assistant district attorney in Manhattan, and her work examines the country's tradition of prosecutorial independence, particularly with regard to the president's power to control the Department of Justice. Well, of course, Michael Cohen's testimony for the House was pretty devastating. Ever since then, there hasn't really been anybody with that kind of insider knowledge about Donald Trump to get a kind of public forum. And Trump's been very proactive in going after anybody that criticizes him. And I recall the one piece of takeaway of that congressional testimony was that Cohen said that Donald Trump would never accept a defeat in an election. And boy, has that proven to be true. <laughs> That's a, that, that, is, that was prescient. You're right. So... What about Mark Pomerantz, though, and Kerry Dunn? I mean, Pomerantz was, I understand, was one of the nation's top specialists in the in the RICO statutes. Yeah, I mean, they they're both incredibly well respected, um, very very experienced prosecutors, and you know, I, I certainly think that if they came to a conclusion that this evidence supported criminal charges, that there was definitely something there. But, you know, people, again, different people can look at evidence from a different perspective. And, you know, it's, it's sort of a generally known thing in the district attorney's office, too, or, or, or in prosecutor's offices more generally, that you, the people who are charging a case tend to be much more... Um, aggressive than the people who are ultimately going to try that case. And I don't know. I, you know, it's an interesting question whether Pomerantz, who I believe is 70 or, or, or over 70 years old, would have tried that case himself. Um, and, you know, that's just a, a, an interesting data point, because I do think, it, you know, it is possible to look at evidence when you don't have to think about being the person who's standing before a jury when you might just interpret it one way, while as you might be more cautious if you're the person who's going to have to stand there and try to convince, you know, all of those jurors beyond a reasonable doubt that this is the one interpretation that these documents and testimony lead to. So, you know, that might have been a dynamic that was going on there as well, though, though, you know, of course, all of this is just speculation. I don't I don't really know. So in the Daily Beast article, it mentions that, quote, a person familiar with the situation described the team the team of prosecutors who were working on the Trump case described the team as gutted and a shell of its former self. There are other reports on the general morale at the Manhattan DA's office since Alvin Bragg took over. There have been a lot of resignations, including the prosecutor uh, who prosecuted Harvey Weinstein. Um, mm -hmm. Apparently she was a veteran there as well. So is there anything going on there? I mean, Bragg does have a different approach, does he not, 
Um, oh, you know, definitely. So there are these high profile, you know, this this is, you know, the, this very high profile prosecution. And then there's the more general matter about crime in New York. Crime in New York is rising with, you know, of course, some horrific crimes that have reached a national audience. And, you know, that amidst a growing movement for criminal justice reform that emphasizes alternatives to incarceration. And that has created itself a very difficult moment for Alvin Bragg, who ran his campaign both on trying to reduce crime and being a reformer, but um, got hit pretty hard in the beginning by adopting pretty radical reformist policies. And so, you know, that's one thing that's haunted the beginning of his tenure. And then there's this other, um, you know, high profile prosecution that has, and I think he's, you know, just trying to get out from under that. But it's it's difficult for him because the you know public he's an elected official is you know is is wondering what's going on behind the scenes and you know honestly as a prosecutor you have an obligation if you do not think evidence is strong enough to um, support a criminal charge to drop those charges to not bring those charges to end the investigation so you know I mean there is in that way I don't think anybody would you know cast aspersions on Alvin Bragg the problem. Problem is, you know, he keeps stumbling because, you know, if he announces that he's still continuing that investigation and he isn't really, you know, that's it's a it's a as you said, you know, there's only a core staff and Michael Cohen feels the writing on the wall and the investigation's going to end. You know, why is he making a public statement that is inconsistent with what is really going on? You know, that's troubling, I think, and he's trying to manage the public relations disaster here, but perhaps making it worse. Well, in his defence, if the case isn't strong enough, it will be a disaster to try Trump and lose. I mean, he's already dodged a bullet with two impeachments. I mean, that would completely change the narrative, right, and breathe fresh air into the into the idea that the deep state's out to get him, etc. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it, 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 these things, you know, are not really appropriate considerations, but I mean, certainly the strength of the case is, you know, and, and so, you know, I, 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 I think, you know, I think, I think Alvin Bragg probably honestly looked at that evidence and honestly thought about the potential consequences, good and bad, um, of bringing this case um, in terms of, you know, typical criminal justice rationales. And I, I you know, I, it's, without having seen it, I don't know which side I would be on, but it's it's perfectly, you know, there's no reason to conclude he's doing anything other than that. Um, you know, the, but the issue here is, is he being completely transparent? And, you know, I, there's, you know, there's just some indicators that he isn't, which I, I think is is a little troubling. And obviously, the, those two prominent prosecutors going public doesn't help. And nobody's ever questioned their integrity, right? And their their professionalism. Absolutely not. You know, so I mean, that's so that's why, you know, I think the, the, the proper conclusion here about what actually happened is there are, you know, three decent prosecutors here um, who have a lot of experience who looked at this evidence and came to different conclusions about the strength of the case. And, you know, one of those prosecutors is the head of the office. He decided not to go forward. I mean, I think that that's what happened here. And, you know, you can be frustrated about that if you wanted to see accountability for Trump, but you can also look at it the way that you just, you know, very um, sort of uh, uh, astutely noticed, which is, you know, this could backfire, right? I mean, if you bring a case and you don't win, um, it can be worse for, you know, the notion of accountability, the rule of law, and all of the things that I think we can agree are really, really important in our system. So, you know, it's, you know, again, we don't have access to all of the information, so we can't, we can't say for sure. But I do think, you know, that we can give the different actors here the benefit of the doubt based on their track records, and then just say, you know, there's, there's frustration on our part at not being, being, being told exactly what is going on. And I think, you know, that's, um, you know, that's, that's in part, part of the nature of prosecution, that it's not done publicly and investigations that it's not done publicly. But I also think this office is picking and choosing what messages it wants to deliver to the public, perhaps partially out of, you know, political expediency, and that is a little bit problematic. So it seems, Rebecca Royfe, that the House Select Committee investigating James the Sixth has an awful lot of evidence, and they're apparently creating a, a very comprehensive roadmap of what really happened. And I mean, there have been very, very few leaks, and one of the leaks that I've recently heard was that what has been leaked so far is nothing compared to the weight of what they really have. Now, obviously, 
there's a lot of wishful thinking there. People, <laughs> for the longest time, have been dismayed by how Trump has always been one step ahead of the sheriff throughout his entire business life and, and political life. So if you can put wishful thinking aside, it's quite possible that they do have a very strong case and that perhaps Trump himself was, in fact, the main instigator of the coup attempt with the insurrection on January the 6th. So there's that still happening. Uh, there's the Georgia case. We all heard that on tape. I mean, that was amazing, having Trump actually shaking down the Secretary of State in Georgia, asking for 11,800 and whatever votes, just one more than than Biden uh, won by. That was a, a pretty amazing piece of evidence. We don't know what's happening there. And do you have any inkling of what's happening with the New York uh, the, Attorney the General's civil, uh, civil case inquiry? that, that uh, Letitia James is bringing? I, I, I don't, but you know, every indication in, is that that case is proceeding. And you know, that case is a civil case, meaning that the burden of proof is lower. And I think you know that um, it may end up making sense to take this kind of case civilly, just because. You know, this is putting aside January 6th and the call to Raffensperger. This is, you know, this that New York City, the, the New York DA's office was investigating these sorts of crimes, tax crimes, bank fraud. These are crimes where it's very hard to prove intent, especially in the context of real estate, because in real estate, the the valuations are based on different calculations and they're really fuzzy in the industry and that makes it very hard to show that the reason that somebody's fudging the numbers is because they are trying to break the law or defraud somebody so it, it they are are just notoriously really hard crimes to prove. So it would be much easier if it were taken civilly just because the burden of proof actually changes. Well, I thank you for joining us here today, Rebecca Royfi, and uh, we'll see whether the Teflon Don, who once said he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and get away with it, so far, that at least, is, he hasn't shot anybody, but he sure as hell been getting away with a lot, has he not? It's true, and it leaves people very frustrated. I understand that. Thanks for having me on, Ian. It's been a pleasure. All the best. And again, I've been speaking with Rebecca Roy, who's a professor of law at New York Law School who studies ethics and the history of the legal profession. She was previously assistant district attorney in Manhattan and her work examines the country's tradition of prosecutorial independence, particularly with regard to the president's power to control the Department of Justice. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic, and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.